Welcome to the New Books Network. Confounding, exhilarating, and contagious. Emotions matter, and so does applying emotional intelligence. Welcome to Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight, the podcast where emotions rule. Whatever the topic, how do hearts and minds collide? Find out with your host, a college professor turned globetrotting EQ entrepreneur. His mission? Each week, Dan joins prominent authors in decoding how emotions drive outcomes and make people tick. Now, on to the show. Hello, everybody, and thank you for joining me for the 23rd episode of my new podcast, Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. The series appears here on the New Books Network, which has as its motto, sharing knowledge so people can thrive. Today's topic is the silence of exceptions. With me is Rory Sutherland, the author of Alchemy, the Dark Art and Curious Science of Creating Magic in Brands, Business, and Life. The publisher is William Morrow. Rory is vice chairman of Ogilvy, a legendary advertising agency. He's a columnist for The Spectator and a former president of the Institute of Practitioners in Advertising, known as the IPA. His TED Talks have been viewed by over 6.5 million people from London. Thank you for joining me, Rory. It's a huge pleasure to be here. I'm delighted. Oh, I think we're going to have a lot of fun. We are our fellow travelers when it comes to behavioral economics and so much more. So to begin, uh, just give listeners a brief overview of what the book is about. Of course. So I suppose the way I describe it very simply is to say that – it's occasionally viewed by people who haven't, I think, properly read it as an attack on logic. It's nothing of the kind. It's merely um, a suggestion that there are many, many things in life which only make sense in retrospect. And therefore, if you use logic as a kind of upfront filter for everything you do, some of the most interesting discoveries will never be made. And so my argument is that there is still scope for. Uh, widespread, seemingly illogical or counterintuitive experimentation, uh, whether in marketplaces or in business or in communication, for example. Um, And the reason for that is that we don't know enough about the world to absolutely be confident about what will work. And if we constrain ourselves only to doing those things which we can explain um, in advance, we will close ourselves off to a lot of forms of progress where, if you like, the explanation happens in retrospect. And after I'd written the book, I I gave a talk with Matt Ridley, who's a wonderful writer in the UK and a very, very distinguished evolutionary biologist. And I think everybody who studied evolution understands this, that there are many things that happen through a mixture of random variation and selection that could never really happen by upfront design. And what was interesting is that Matt made a point almost in passing in the course of our conversation, where he said that a very great biologist had described biology as a science of exceptions. Now, that's distinct from something like physics, which is a science of universal, applicable, timeless laws. And you might argue that in a changing environment, in an environment where the context is always shifting, um, the search for actually what you might call unbending laws of human behavior is, to be honest, um, 
a little bit of a wild goose chase. We're never going to have a Newton of psychology, for example. Uh, we're probably not going to have a Newton of marketing because ours is, if you like, like biology, a different kind of science. If you look at, for example, penicillin, that wasn't actually invented from log a process of logical deduction or induction. What it was was an observation of something freakish and unexpected which someone then sought to explain. And it so turned out that the explanation brought with it an extraordinarily valuable advance in medicine. Now, my criticism would often be of economists who tend to dismiss anything that doesn't sit with mainstream economic theory as being an anomaly or a bias, uh, or worse than that, pure irrationality on the part of the human actor. And I'd always prefer to take less of a Newton approach and more of a Darwin approach, go around consumer capitalism, um, rather as Darwin went around the Galapagos Islands, find the strange findings that your environment throws up and seek to understand them and then perhaps seek to at least look for replicating patterns. We're not really in a place where we're looking for universal laws because um, it's simply too complex and unstable an environment to produce something of the kind. Instead, what we need is actually a very heightened sense of pattern recognition combined with an eye for looking for the anomaly and then discovering whether it has something valuable to tell us. Well, I, 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 say, yeah. I often say, you know, if, if Alexander Fleming had been an economist, he would have looked at the Petri dish with the dead bacteria in it, would have said, well, this is clearly completely anomalous. Um, Petri dishes are supposed to grow bacteria in large numbers. So my first reaction will be to throw this away. I argue that we need to do the opposite. It's precisely when you have things like Red Bull which is a kind of, you know, duck-billed platypus of the <laughs> consumer capitalist world. Those are the things we need to investigate most. Well, delightfully said, and I couldn't agree more. In fact, when I read the book, I did not think of you as, you know, simply shunting aside logic and reason, because I think you would be also aware of the limits of subjectivity in terms of being solipsistic. I saw you more as kind of an experientialist, you know, saying, what can you gather from coincidences, Bob Dylan saying in his wonderful song, It's All Over Now, Baby Blue. Is that kind of where you come out, or you want to state it a bit differently? Don't want to put words in your mouth here. Uh, yeah, no, I think um, I think the vital thing is that, I mean, let's let's look at something like capitalism, which I think free market capitalism has been forced it shoehorned really uh into a model by economists who see it as primarily a vehicle for delivering efficiency and for satisfying wants that people already know they have uh, in uh, as low cost a way as possible and i'm much more interested in capitalism which is manifest as a form of discovery, which is it's only by producing, you know, weird and occasionally counterintuitive or illogical products that you discover what it is that people really want. Because economics won't tell you what people want. Perhaps stranger still, and this comes from some very recent work in psychology, people themselves don't fully know what they want. Uh, they well, able, indeed. Yeah. They may be able to describe their proximate wants, but their ultimate deep down wants are often opaque to introspection. Um, very useful phrase. They're kind of, uh, you know, unconscious. They're felt, but they're not thought. And therefore, by dint of being 
not thought, they're not really spoken. Sure. No, I, I started my company all these years ago because of the killer statistic that about 95% of people's mental activity uh, is not fully conscious. So, yes, there's so much below the waterline for us. Uh, you have, yeah, I mean, Darwin comes up several times in the book, to say the least. And there's a wonderful term or phrase you say, evolution likes fitness, not accuracy. Your father was a doctor. I'm wondering how much that background might have played into how you approach capitalism. Actually, it was my grandfather who was a doctor. Oh, grandfather. Um, okay. I, I had a very strange, um, uh, if you like, int introduction to evolutionary biology for two reasons. I went to Christ College, Cambridge, which was the same college as Darwin. Um, and I was born in Lundbaddock, uh, which is a tiny Welsh village, which also gave birth to Alfred Russell Wallace. And once I think I was uh, hoping to attend a conference on um, uh, uh, evolutionary biology. And as these academic conferences do, they ask for your academic qualifications. <laughs> sure. And I said, I've got a Master of Arts degree from Christ College, Cambridge, which is all that Darwin ever had. And I was born in Lundbaddock, which was the only qualification that Russell Wallace ever had. He was entirely self-taught. Um, and my argument is that... Um, uh, strangely, I was converted to looking at the world through the eyes of a biologist, through reading really evolutionary psychology and interesting books, everything from, even though I regard Dawkins as broadly speaking deranged in many of his opinions, um, because after all, the question to ask about religion is not, is it accurate, but is it valuable? Okay. Uh, <laughs> if, you know, you know the, point, the point to ask about religion is not, you know, is it an accurate view of the world? The point to ask is surely, do certain beliefs, um, even if, in a sense, not based on accurate reality, do they confer evolutionary advantages? Uh, for example, overconfidence probably confers evolutionary advantages. Um, in many in many situations, not all. Okay, um, bravado probably in terms of sexual selection may be actually a you know a valuable attribute in terms of contributing to fitness. So I did have a kind of um, Damascus Road um, revelation, a kind of epiphany, uh, reading these books, which encouraged me to look at the world essentially through the opposite end of the telescope. And I found that process incredibly valuable ever since. And one of the things you notice is you automatically know when someone you're talking to has had a similar revelatory experience. Fair enough. The title of the episode, you chose The Silence of Exceptions. I'm wondering what's, uh, you know, if you unpack that for us a little bit, what's behind that and maybe an exception or two that you'd like to point out beyond what you've already mentioned. Well, I think it has a big bearing, um, having learned that biology is the science of exceptions, which is one of those banal-sounding sentences which sounds completely, <laughs> uh, you know, it's it, it sounds completely banal until you realize that, of course, it's it's essentially encouraging you to look in a different place. Um, where you look to, for your significant findings is not the same kind of experimentation as you would adopt if you were a physicist, for example. And it has, I think, important bearings on things like AI and and data analysis. That arguably we might be using artificial intelligence to look for generalities, whereas in business, of course, you don't need to be generally right. Those areas of the world where you can be generally right 
are usually overcrowded with competitors already. <laughs> what you need yeah. to start a business is to be right for 20% of people 10% of the time. And now you've got yourself a business. Okay, there are a lot, a lot of businesses which are highly exceptional, but they're context dependent. I mean, the example I always give is sunglasses at the airport. Okay, um, you know, would you normally pay $140? dollars or two hundred dollars for a pair of sunglasses for whatever reason and i think we should investigate the psychology of this on the high street the answer is no if you're <laughs> in an airport and you go into a branch of something called sunglass hut strangely they seem to find you know quite a lucrative business uh selling people in that particular setting sunglasses at a very very high price so so speaking of biology and staying with darwin and all you you mentioned costly signaling in the book how are instances where advertising can take advantage of this trait that not only do animals but human animals human nature plays into as well well, well costly signaling is one of those things which looked at through one lens is entirely rational and looked at through another lens is if perhaps not optimal is entirely necessary. So the point about costly signaling is it's a theory that emerged in biology that certain trays, Darwin once said, I think in a letter to someone else, that when I see a peacock's tail, it makes me almost physically sick because you have this entirely pointless level of decoration, which is, if anything, a major barrier to survival. But it seems, and hence Darwin's theory of sexual selection, which is arguably the more interesting of the two theories in many ways, which is that it's necessary, or at least arbitrarily, certain animals will take certain indicators as a proxy measure of mate fitness. Okay, so for most of evolutionary history, we weren't capable of gene sequencing. We couldn't actually uh, determine mate quality on the basis of, um, uh, you know, genetic makeup. And so what we needed was visible proxies, but also proxies which were hard to fake. Okay, so it'd be very easy if you if you if you, if, if someone started using a proxy measure uh, of. Uh, of fitness uh, that was very easy to fake, it would rapidly become meaningless, okay? Rather like if you could photocopy Harvard degrees, okay, <laughs> and simply change the name, it would become worthless as a signal of your employability, for example. And so the very costliness of something, the fact that it was difficult to do, was what conveyed the meaning. And so um, the point would be that that in different genders, in different species, and sometimes in both species, there would be a kind of arms race to do things precisely because they were difficult and costly, um, because whoever did it to the greatest possible extent uh, essentially uh, enjoyed a disproportionate reproductive advantage in terms of their desirability. And there would also be there would also be, I suppose it's fair to say, opposite things, which are things, you know, so symmetry seems to be particularly admired in human features because it's a fairly reliable marker of uh, genetic fitness. And also yep. a fairly a, a, you know, clear skin might be a reliable marker that you have a fairly good immune system that's resistant to parasites and uh, other forms of infection. You might even then argue that this extends from the genotype to the phenotype with things like deliberate scarring or tattooing, 
that you would deliberately cut yourself to prove your um, uh, uh, your your resistance to infection and the quality of your immune system. Okay, and so okay. you know, riding a mo- in terms of costly demonstrations, if I say I am brave, that is a more or less meaningless claim. It's cheap talk. Um, if sure. I ride a motorcycle at enormous speeds, it's, fair, <laughs> it's fairly reliable proof uh, that I've got some cojones on me. Sure. And in terms of applying this to your your advertising clients at Ogilvy, where does uh, where do you get to leverage costly signaling? Well, I think costly signaling operates at multiple levels. Part of it might just be the cost of media. So a company that advertises on the Super Bowl patently has resources to spare. It's also made a demonstrable, irreversible commitment to investment in its reputation, which is a reliable indicator that it it at least intends to be around for some time. Now, in terms of understanding trust, Actually, any activity which is what you might call long-term focused tends to be a fairly reliable indicator of trust. If you think about it, what is you know what is the t- typical uh, language we use of untrustworthy people? Fly by night, you know. Uh, you yep. know. In other words, we trust someone who invests in a restaurant more than we trust someone who turns up with a food van. All other things being equal, because the person with the sunk cost in uh, you know, in a set location, um, is dependent on repeat custom, and therefore is more likely to give you both a healthy and enjoyable meal than someone who's merely ripping you off once. It's why tourist restaurants tend to be very, very bad, okay? Yeah. Because there's very little repeat custom. So you're, sim- you're s- signaling in a costly way uh, both your own financial health which is not a bad thing to signal in trustworthiness. In other words, we're not desperate because we're advertising and we're future focused and we're actually invested in our current identity and reputation. And that purely exists at the media cost level, the kind of Super Bowl ad versus, um, you know, performance marketing, single appearance, digital banner level. Okay. Um, You're also signaling that by talking to a lot of people simultaneously and indiscriminately, you're confident in what you have to say. You're not merely trying to pick off the gullible because you're making a public declaration in an open space rather than making a private one-to-one promise. And if you think about it, we get married in front of a large crowd. We make our wedding vows in front of a large crowd. We don't do it door-to-door. (laughs) <laughs> okay, and that's yes. that's purely at the level of the medium. But then I'd also argue in creativity, both in craft, in ingenuity, in aesthetics, in everything else we do when we advertise. Okay, um, those are things which are costly and difficult to do. It's harder to write a good headline. It's harder to write an elegant headline. It's harder and costly as well to get good typographers photographers and designers involved it's expensive if you want a celebrity to appear in your ad for example you know i mean it's highly unlikely that um uh, you know a major nfl player is going to appear in advertising for free and so everything from the content to the place it appears and i'm not suggesting there's no rational persuasion persuasion or messaging going on as well but a large part of the conviction that's created by advertising is the product of things that are surprisingly tangential to the main message that the ad may be ostensibly trying to convey. Okay. 
Um, speaking of tangential, I, I'm interested because obviously one of the ways you can create consideration is the use of humor, and the book is very funny, and obviously you have a good sense of humor. But there's always the risk, naturally, that the the joke can overshadow the the product and the sale. H- how does that how does that play out? Do you think well, most wisely? I mean, it's worth remembering that humor is difficult to do, um, and yep. generally, humor. Nassim Taleb has interesting ideas on this, which is that humor is in some ways a way of signaling intelligence without nerdiness. So if you were to go on a date and you were to suddenly start performing quadratic equations in front of your date, it might reliably uh, suggest that you were quite an intelligent person, but in a slightly creepy and weird way. (laughs) Whereas the ability to tell jokes on the fly and the ability also, I would argue, to gauge your jokes to the audience, for example, is arguably a proxy indicator of, uh, of wit if you like. And also, it probably conveys social ability, which is, let's face it, social ability in most of the evolutionary environment, social skills, social intelligence, are, well, actually, I would argue still, potentially more valuable attributes than uh, pure intellectual intelligence. So you have a wonderful comment quite early in the book. You said the human mind does not run on logic any more than a horse runs on petrol. It strikes me that uh, when you said that the brain's legal and PR departments uh, are reason. And then you say uh, there could be other departments that, you know, could be in the equation. It seems to me that accounting and market research also fall into the fallacy of thinking reason is everything. So I- I've met with the IPA in London. I know very well they're studying which ads that were tested actually performed more poorly than ads that were not tested. How has market research gone off the rails? What, it, what could it learn from Darwin and biology? I think one of the things that it, it found, and I think this is a lesson for real life, in defense of ad testing, it did seem that testing removed uh, the most ineffectual advertisements from circulation. So it was an early warning system that an ad you were producing um, was, uh, you know, failing at some basic level, and so that, okay. that has that has a value, and you know we mustn't forget that. The price you pay for that is it also tended to kick out ads which would be exceptionally um, potent, because ads which are exceptionally noticeable or distinctive um, or uh, attention grabbing quite often break the conventional rules for what an ad is trying to do. Um, you know, or they do it in a completely unexpected and unpredictable way. And you have an even bigger problem now where in many large clients, uh, the marketing department are actually bonused not on the commercial success of what they do, but on the market research link scores. Oh, And so you have this awful problem where essentially this is the great thing of um, – uh, it's a wonderful, wonderful rule, and it's called Goodhart's Law. And it states that any metric that becomes a target loses its value as a metric. Because anybody who's bonused essentially on uh, market search scores rather than success in the marketplace has now essentially got an incentive to kind of game the system by producing the kind of advertising that may be fairly dull or ineffectual uh, in terms of its market effect, but which gets you a good bonus because it scores very well in market research. 
And that's sure. a terrible, terrible state of affairs. Intermediate metrics are quite often disastrous because they produce an incentive to game the system and they also distort the system they're intending to measure. Okay, so that's very much what you mean when you said what gets mismeasured gets mismanaged. Mismanaged, completely right. And so one of the things I would say is that's probably true of reason as well, that an overactive use of reason where you demand a completely logical uh, flow of action from one step to another does have the advantage, and that's why humans are possessed of a sense of reason, that it stops people doing utterly insane and stupid things. The price you pay is that it also prevents you from doing those things which are probably, in truth, less likely to succeed, but are disproportionately successful when they do. And there's an important point. Jeff Bezos said something very similar, that most of the time, the common sense and logical thing to do is generally quite a good answer, but it won't give you a spectacular breakthrough success. Quite likely, because the logical thing has been pursued by quite a lot of people already. As I, I occasionally use this phrase, if there were a logical answer to your problem, someone already would have found We've it. We've gotten there. Yeah. 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 Well, one of the things about Bezos is actually his father was a circus performer. And so I, I think there is an element of the high wire act in Bezos and why he will take those intriguing leaps that have certainly paid off for him I mean, in many cases. Certainly Amazon Prime. I mean, he's certainly very happy with failure. Um, I think he announced when the Fire Phone, the Amazon phone failed, he announced to investors, uh, you know, uh, if you're expecting to beat me up over this, don't, because we're going to have far more spectacular failures in the future, because that's how we work. You know, in a sense, that would be the model both of early stage investors, it'd be the model of the film industry, it'd be the model of the publishing industry, of course, which is that your few disproportionate successes essentially fund your experimental early stage um, uh, investments. Sure. So, so speaking of the creative process, uh, of all the people I've had on the show, I'm particularly interested in having your answer in this case. I mean, in writing a manuscript, there's an act of discovery after all. Robert Frost said, no surprise for the writer, no surprise for the reader. What changed in writing this book for you? What were, Where did the lights go on? Where did you discard things? Oh, that's a wonderful point. I mean, it, it certainly... Uh, fascinated me because as a book, it prodded you to investigate not only biology, which we've mentioned quite extensively on this call, but whole areas of kind of philosophy and philosophy of science, for example. Uh, you know, I discovered authors, for example, Paul Feyerabend, who wrote a book called Against Method. And his argument was really lined up against the purists of scientific methodology when he said, if you look at the real history of scientific discovery and indeed the history of invention, there's a fairly large amount of luck involved. Uh, and you can't really point to a single approach which has yielded the greatest successes. People have stumbled upon things for all kinds of different reasons, in many cases, while trying to research something else, uh, for example. And so uh, one of the things that, and I recommend a book here, actually, which is a wonderful book on luck by Robert H. Frank. And one of the things I realized, which surprised me, but I don't have any choice but to acknowledge that it's true, is that free market capitalism and business isn't a particularly 
um, meritocratic system for reward, because in many cases it rewards people for being lucky. Um, you know, if you look at, for example, the billionaires of the tech world, nearly all of them uh, were born within about five years of each other and had the good fortune to be born not only in the United States, but in the right part of the United States. You know, Bill Gates went to a high school which freakishly in the 1970s um, uh, actually bought mainframe time after hours from a local business. Now, you know, how many people had that advantage? Yep. But then you have to look at it a different way, which is that if we didn't reward positive, lucky accidents, if we had a much more meritocratic, worthy system of rewarding effort, which rewarded people on the quality of their thinking, not on the value of their contribution, okay, we would have a much less efficient form of capitalism. It's rather like you would ban the use of any drug that had been discovered by accident. Okay. If you imagine we wouldn't have penicillin, you know, we wouldn't have aspirin. There are plenty of very, very valuable drugs which, you know, we knew they worked. We discovered them by accident. We knew they worked long before we knew how they worked. We had no idea how they worked at the molecular level. And so this dependence on reasoning and rewarding the quality of this is possibly one of the great problems of communism which is, you know, the importance of an idea does not there isn't some weird market mechanism which rewards you for being just luckily flukishly clever a la red bull or dyson instead you have a um a, a system that rewards people according to the purity of their upfront reasoning uh you'd actually have a so the weird thing is this weird system of rewarding luck isn't a bug of capitalism it's actually an essential feature yeah, no, I, I think you pursue what, what is working. Um, absolutely. I mean, it's a wonderful thing. You know, there's, you know, when you look at restaurantomics, which I always think is an interesting field of economics, you know, that you know, someone will open a restaurant in a site where all five previous restaurants have failed spectacularly. You know, and someone will just turn up and decide to make it a Turkish restaurant or whatever it may be. And suddenly the thing is a spectacular success. And you know, can you actually, could you, you You can always post-rationalize, because that's another important lesson of the book, by the way. You know, it's always possible to provide reasons after the event. What's lacking is often pre-rationalization is the thing that's uh, difficult and limited. Post-rationalization, we seem to be, to be absolutely honest, we seem to have evolved brains which can effectively construct a story around pretty much every eventuality. Yeah, no, we're we're very good at covering our tracks. Yes. That's brilliant to that. And that that I think is that's the brain's PR function and the brain's legal function. And the argument is that we evolved a sense of reason not to inform our decisions, but to explain our decision making to others or to defend ourselves from attacks from others. So that in a sense, the brain developed language for the marketing department and the legal department. Um uh, long, long before it started using it for decision making. Yeah, well, you, 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 have the, you have the luck of the breakthrough, but then you have once you've gotten that luck and the, all the envy of your colleagues, then you have to defend yourself. So there right, is covering your tracks right. as well. And what you generally do is you write a story which says, "Well, of course, I foresaw this all along." Um, and to be honest, the reason you foresaw it along may be because at the time you were just derangedly and insanely optimistic. <laughs> or, or possibly even stupid, because in some cases, capitalism will undoubtedly reward stupidity. 
Because someone who just fails to pick up on a logical objection because they're too boneheaded or stubborn to listen will obviously obviously be punished very frequently for doing utterly stupid things. But one time in 20, they'll find themselves in a completely unexplored space, in a completely virgin market. You know, I always think there's something fascinating about Dyson. You know, Had James Dyson come to me 15 years ago and said, I think there's a market for a $600 vacuum cleaner, I'd go, yeah, maybe among <laughs> 20 people. Because there are two arguments. One, if you look at the current market, you see the sweet spot in the middle on that bell curve of vacuum cleaner expenditure is probably around 200 bucks. There are cheaper ones. Okay, there are Miele ones, which are about you know, 70, 80, 100% more expensive. But there's nothing at your price point, besides which everybody who can afford $800 for a vacuum cleaner presumably employs a household cleaner anyway, so they don't even get to do their own hoovering. And so the, the, the rational arguments against Dyson, or the rational arguments of Zoom is a wonderful case in point, okay, because as they found from most of the people they approached hoping for early stage investment in Zoom, the people said, hold on a second, you're starting a video conferencing business. Apple, Amazon, Facebook, Google, okay, Microsoft, all have extensive and large investments in this particular activity and their products are free and what you're seriously suggesting is that uh, it uh, will be possible to compete against those established giants with their capacity to roll out anything they like to an instant user base in the millions and you can somehow do that independently through mere technical superiority combined with i would argue a good dose of uh, usability it might have been that Zoom was successful precisely because you paid for it. I mean, it, we shouldn't reject the possible hypothesis that the fact that Skype and everything else was made pretty much free essentially devalued it as a business tool. Because you were no longer providing any hospitality, were you? There wasn't even the symbolic biscuit and a cup of coffee. <laughs> If you're communicating through a mode that was completely free, we shouldn't reject the fact that the very charging for Skype might have contained, you know, uh, the seeds of its success or some of them. Well, that, that brings me back to Groucho Marx not wanting to be a member of any club that would have him. So um, free doesn't create a lot of barriers and uh, we like exclusivity somewhere in our souls, I believe, often. So I think our time's about up, Rory. It's been absolutely fascinating. I, I so enjoyed your book. I, I want to thank you for having been a guest on Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. This has been episode number 23, The Silence of Exceptions. My guest, Rory Sutherland, the book, Alchemy, The Dark Art and Curious Science of Creating Magic in Brands, Business, and Life. To check out other episodes or my books or other activities, including my appearances in other people's podcasts, feel free to visit my company's website at www.sensorylogic.com. If you've got a follow-up question for Rory, you can email me at dhill at sensorylogic.com. Finally, I'd like to conclude every episode with an appropriate epigram. So today's comes, of course, from Charles Darwin, who said, I love fool's experiments. I'm always making them. Until next time, be kind and stay safe. 